It is really bothering me. It really is. I'm sorry. I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to focus on this episode, quite honestly. What's bothering you? <laughs> that you're wearing pants. <laughs> you're dressed like an adult. For the, I think the first time in the you're show. You're making it sound like I don't wear pants. I mean, you do on Sundays when you come to church, which... <laughs> My wife makes me. We're all thankful for. <laughs> but I don't think you have for any other episode of the podcast, have you? I might have If you had to think about it that point, much, I, I think that answers jeans. the question. I don't know. Do you I... dress like this every day? I actually, I do. In and fact, I actually wear a tie. And I've got a fancy little tie clip that I wear. And uh, it's the Greek letter P. Right? Nice. Yeah. yeah. Some people call it tie. Yeah, I was going to say Greek doesn't have a letter P, but I didn't want to. Well, yeah. Because your pronunciation. It, I, well, it, it does. It does. That's true. <laughs> so you're just saying that you dress down normally for me after you've dressed like an adult for most of the work day. You... It's hard work being an adult all day long. Okay. All right. Wow. Okay. Well, I will <laughs> I will do my best to, to push through and persevere. All right. Well, yeah. I'm sorry I've thrown you off so hard. It's all right. Are you ready to get started? Yeah, let's do it. Very good. I'm Joel. I'm Jacob. And this is the Tolly Legge Podcast, in which we encourage and equip you to read the great books uh, with profit and joy. And for what it's worth, about halfway through that opening, I didn't know we'd started yet. <laughs> Okay, so uh, what are we reading, Jacob? We are still reading The Abolition of Man. We are indeed. Always are. reading The Abolition of Man. We're always reading The Abolition of Man, that's true. Uh, we're reading it a lot at the beginning of this year and uh, thinking a lot about it. And last episode, we went through part one, lecture one uh, of the book, talked a little bit about Lewis's critique of an elementary textbook that he referred to as the Green Book. Uh, the authors, Gaius and Titius, in order to... You know, their names were changed to protect the guilty, so to speak. Yeah, about that last episode, yeah. you talked really long. That was a long episode. That Joel, is true. It I, was our longest so far. Yeah, I just wanted to warn you to not talk so much this time. Okay, I will. It's clearly all your fault. I, I granted, that's probably true. <laughs> I was, I was tired the last episode, I, but I'm always tired. Like I'm tired every episode, so that probably makes me a little more um, verbose. Uh, today we're going to come back to part two and hopefully part three as well, kind of finish up uh, the remainder of the of the work. And I, I mentioned uh, last episode, part two is by far my favorite part of this work. But it's also the part where I would have the most critiques to make of what Lewis is doing. They are friendly critiques. Uh, they're, they're offered with affection and admiration. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, I think there's some really interesting philosophical and theological issues to delve into uh, in this second part, which he titles The Way, mm -hmm. and the introductory quote uh, to that chapter is from uh, the Analects of Confucius, which says, it is upon the trunk that a gentleman works. Mm -hmm. 
what is what is Lewis intending to remind us of from part one by means of including that quote? What is the what is the trunk and uh, that that we're thinking about when we think about the abolition of man? Yeah, the men without chest, right, was kind of the big thing in the in the first section of this book. Uh, it's upon the heart. It's upon the, the seat of sentiment and emotion and so on and so forth, I think is what Confucius is getting at here. And Lewis is, uh, is picking up where he left off. And so what we're going to deal with here in this kind of second section of the book um, is having come to this realization of where this kind of philosophy that's being laid down, where it's taking us, what, what do we do in light of it, right? right? Uh, what and maybe better question is what do people who have backed this philosophy what are they going to do in light of it? Yeah, yeah. And so in the latter part of part one, he had introduced this idea of the Tao. He's using that just kind of as a as a placeholder, as a stipulated term uh, to describe something that he considers to be uh, common to all ethical traditions, uh, all moral systems, uh, all faiths in one sense, uh, but that is in very clear distinction from the kind of ethics that are coming out of the more radical enlightenment and then modernity. Uh, he's calling this the Tao, uh, and he's thinking about this simply as the fundamental moral principles that are inherent within the world as it exists, that, that, that frame reality and then provide the basis, not only for the is, but for the ought. Yeah. I, I was uh, just writing about uh, Socrates earlier today. Um, and, of course, Socrates, what, what he would have called the Tao was the good, mm -hmm. right? Um, this, this objective reality, uh, a subjective truth, be kind of the backstop of all reality, the, the uh, first principles of, of moral truth, right? Um, which we know as Christians, right, is God himself, right. um, and which some of the better philosophers uh, got remarkably close to in some ways. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. If I could flash, flash forward just a little bit in part two, even though we're, we're kind of working through it in order, uh, this is something that appears on page 43 of the edition that uh, we're, we're working out of here today. Uh, Lewis says this to clarify what he means. He says, This thing which I have called for convenience the Tao, and which others may call natural law, or traditional morality, or the first principles of practical reason, or the first platitudes, is not one among a series of possible systems. It is the sole source of all value judgments. If it is rejected, all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. So that gives us kind of clarity in terms of what Lewis is talking about. He's not speaking about this in religious terms. He's not using explicitly theological language. He even says here in part two that he's not trying to sneak God in the back door, although I think there's some things that we need to talk about with regard to that. But by this term, Tao, he's not trying to endorse an Eastern philosophy as opposed to a Western tradition, but really speaking to what many Western philosophers would call a natural law tradition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is the this is the thing which again we've talked about I think last the last podcast, but uh, starting with the Enlightenment period in particular there was this kind of uh, whittling away at some of these first principles. Um, and so the, the Enlightenment skepticism that kind of came into being started questioning uh, how we know what we know. And at, and at first, some of those questions were legitimate, right? Some of those questions were, 
asking, uh, are there things that we need to clear away so we can get at the truth? And the Enlightenment has produced advances in technology and so on and so forth. But we saw over time that that went from simply uh, questioning some of our assumptions to questioning first principles, to questioning our own sensory perception to a point where, and it, when it became full-blown, full-born, uh, really was a rejection of truth altogether. Can we know anything? Right. That becomes the question. And then when we reduce things to mere naturalism, as he's going to discuss in part three, uh, have we not eliminated even the possibility of that which we consider to be natural or basic to even to even be, to even exist in, in one sense? And of course, the problem that we're going to talk about a lot today in part two is the inability, the absolute impossibility of moving from a description of what is to what ought to be. Uh, it's just a bridge that, that uh, is too far. Right, right. At the very, the very outset, uh, after the Confucius quote, Lewis says in part two, the practical result of education in the spirit of the green book must be the destruction of the society which accepts it. But this is not necessarily a refutation of subjectivism about values as a theory. The true doctrine might be a doctrine which, if we accept it, we die. Mm -hmm. So what's Lewis's point here? Yeah, he is saying that this is a self-destructive uh, 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 theory, ideology, um, but that doesn't really say yay or nay about whether it's true. In other words, uh, if, uh, you know, if belief in a, in a universal objective morality is mere cloud watching, if it is a, a, a pipe dream, well, then, you know, what will be will be. Let it, let's embrace truth, whatever it is, wherever we find it. But just know that if the worldview that the Green Book is advancing is, in fact, the true worldview, then human society will not flourish. It will not even survive. Mm -hmm. Which is an interesting, uh, an interesting situation because in light, if there is no Tao, if there is no absolute morality, then the very thing which it seems like we would want to avoid is following any doctrine that leads to the eventual destruction of humanity Correct. or society, right? Correct. Um, and yet, so he, he gives this, uh, this Greek quote, which is actually from Homer's Iliad, mm -hmm. which is you know, translated basically, let us die in daylight, right? So he says, if we're going to examine this, if we're, if we're within the Tao, we want to follow the truth wherever it goes. So even if it leads to our destruction, let us go with our eyes wide open. That's right. Right. Let us That's embrace right. what reality actually gives us. Let's look. Let's look it full in the face. Let's deal with it for what it is. Uh, of course, as we as we do that, I think Lewis realizes and and is and is trying to help us realize that it is a self refuting uh, ideology. That this is not true. Uh, it it's slitting its own wrists. But we will slit our own wrists if we embrace it. Um, so he goes on in, in the, the first part of uh, this section. He says, however subjective they may be about some traditional values, Gaius and Titius have shown by the very act of writing the Green Book that there must be some other values about which they are not subjective at all. They write in order to produce certain states of mind in the rising generation, if not because they think those states of mind intrinsically just or good, yet certainly because they think them to be the means to some state of society which they regard as desirable. This, uh, this really comes to, to the question of you know, the antithesis, uh, and it is not a question of whether you will have standards of value, but which standards you will have whether there will be an authority, a god in the system, but which god it is that you will serve. Inevitably, even the most hardened relativist has certain ideas that he cannot but inevitably pursue 
and seek to promote upon other people, even sometimes at the point of the spear or the gun. Right, which is really just trying to get rid of the Tao to replace it with a new Tao of exactly. some sort, right? Uh, Lewis says that uh, in, in realizing this kind of difficulty, sometimes they try to use uh, different language to get around this, and they'll say things, well, to abstain from calling it good and to use instead such predicates as necessary or progressive or efficient. But Lewis says this would be subterfuge. So mm -hmm. why is that subterfuge to do that? Yeah, because they are trying to uh, to evade the reality that they are seeking to exchange moral systems. They are not actually being true to the principles that they claim to affirm. They are not actually being uh, full and consistent subjectivists or relativists. They're simply saying, we don't like your system, and we want to put our system in its place. We want to say that ours is the inevitable, ours is the inescapable, ours ours is the one that is true and yours is false. Kind of like in uh, the, the the very bad prequels uh, that were made for the Star Wars movies, you know, the idea that Obi-Wan says only Siths think in absolutes. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. Are you absolutely sure that that's true? Because that sounds like a self-defeating argument. I, I love those movies. I mean, just I know, podcast over again. <laughs> but but they're they're good movies. I'm not saying the philosophy's good, but they're entertaining movies. The philosophy's definitely no, they're not. No, but that's always been the way. Yes. All right. I'm sorry. Let's get back. That's to all right. So yeah. he goes on as he's developing this. He says, in the last resort, they would have to admit that some state of affairs was, in their opinion, good for its own sake. Mm -hmm. And this time they could not maintain that good simply described their own emotion about it. Yeah. So, so the question that I like to ask, and, and is by no means original with me, but, but in these kind of apologetic conversations, whenever someone is critiquing traditional morality, whenever they're critiquing a biblical worldview or something like natural law, and they're offering something else in its place that they consider to be more desirable, more just, whatever it may be, the question is, why? Mm -hmm. And says who? Yeah. By what standard? Exactly. Right? Because you really, you are just, you're just replacing words, but trying to say, this is what's good. This right. is what's right, you know? And, uh, yeah, what, what is the ultimate standard upon which you're making those claims, right? Because right. if you're just subjecting your own thoughts or feelings on, on the issue, there's no reason, if, if that's all that it is, there's no reason why your feelings or, or your opinions are any weightier than mine, that's right? That's exactly right. Uh, and so we play this game, uh, you know, where we say, okay, well, maybe it's not just then. Maybe it's not just individuals who decide morality. Maybe it's uh, communities that decide morality, right? But all that does is kick the problem back up the food chain a little bit and say, well, what about when one society disagrees with another society? What when? What when the allied forces think that the you know the Axis shouldn't be shouldn't be doing what they're doing, right? Um, and so it, you just you keep pushing it up and up and up, but you realize for there ever to be a point in which every single person is bound to say this is right and this is wrong, that standard actually has to be grounded outside of something, that is, outside of man, right? Outside of the human race. And this is a key point in part two that Lewis is driving at that we really want to emphasize throughout this episode, I think. The pro-abortionist is offended when the Christian uh, imposes his morality upon society. Who are you to say what a woman ought to do with her own body, 
right? Uh, and, and, and we see the fallacy in that. We say, well, you know, we're not actually talking about what she can do with her own body. We're talking about what she ought to do. But who so, are you to tell me that I shouldn't be telling other people things they should do? Exactly. You're telling exactly. me I shouldn't be doing something right now. Correct. Why shouldn't I tell you you should be doing something right now? And that's the issue, is to say every value judgment like that is an imposition of morality. The question is, whose morality? By what standard? Says who? And so the same person who is offended by a pro-life activist imposing the morality of a pro-life position upon the rest of the society, that same activist for abortion is going to demand that the rest of society celebrate transgender rights or same-sex marriage or whatever other perversion may be kind of the, uh, the, the, the flavor of the month. And we're always talking about morality. People have said foolish things like, you cannot legislate morality. The reality is, is morality is about the only thing that you can legislate. That's right. Yeah. And the most mundane law is still based upon the principal idea somewhere that this is what you ought to do or what you ought not to do. Correct. For some reason. Correct. Yeah. Why and says who? Those are always the questions. By what standard is that obligation being imposed upon me? He goes on to say, a great many, this is on page 29, a great many of those who debunk traditional, or as they would say, quote, sentimental values, have in the background values of their own which they believe to be immune from the debunking process. And this is, this is why I, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to write a piece about the presuppositional apologetic of C.S. Lewis, because that's exactly what he's doing here. He is pointing to the presuppositions. He is pointing to the antithesis. He is driving people back to examine the assumptions of their own system and turning their arguments right back around on them and saying that, that you have no moral standing. You are borrowing capital from the traditional worldview, yeah. from a moral system. You're borrowing that capital and then taking that as your place to stand, but you're sawing off the branch that you're sitting on. Francis Schaeffer would call that leaping to the upper story, right? Yes. To, to borrow from the Christian worldview. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, I, since you brought it up, I got I to gotta make this point. Um, you know, there's always this kind of classical apologetics versus presuppositional apologetics argument that people love to have. And I've always been the guy that says, how about we just work those things together because they're actually right. very complementary, even right. if the people who wield them often are not. Yep. But one thing I've always noted that I think is so glaringly obvious that a lot of people don't see is that the, the moral argument for God's existence, which is typically classified as a classical argument, right, is just a presuppositional argument. 100%. 100%. Which just shows, the, just shows the relationship really there that right. these are not in opposition to one another. Correct. And I think what you and I would both agree on is that presuppositionalism, at least in its best manifestations, is, is essentially the fundamental philosophy underlying an apologetic, an explicitly Christian apologetic approach. Whereas what you see in classical apologetics or even evidential apologetics is more often the techniques by which apologetics might be practiced. Right. So you might bring these arguments to the conversation. You might bring these tools onto the battlefield, but you're always doing so with an, a fundamental awareness that it's the presuppositions of the conversation and of the respective worldviews that are really at issue. Right, yeah. And I think the, the Arminian uh, in their theology tends to be more attracted to the classical evidential approach because they think they can persuade people to believe the gospel right. and reason and evidence are things by which you use to persuade people. Right. And so they just kind of gravitate that way and, and see presuppositionalism as not helpful in that mm -hmm. way. 
And yet the reality is that we know that God uses means, God uses arguments, God uses reason and evidence, and that can be a big part of his drawing process. But ultimately, we can't persuade anybody. That's right. I know yeah. this is off topic. We can move on. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit has to. But, <laughs> but that, that points to the fact that the more fundamental disagreement is the theological and soteriological question of how does a person come to faith? Yeah. What, what role does the Holy Spirit play in bringing an unbeliever to faith? That's the fundamental issue. Yeah. If, if two Christians agree in a broadly reformed uh, kind of viewpoint on those questions, then the debate between presuppositionalism and classical apologetics should not be as large a debate as it often is. On page 31, Lewis says, From propositions about fact alone... No practical conclusion can ever be drawn. Now, this is something he's going to say several times in different ways in this, in this second part. But, Jacob, I want you to tease this out for us a little bit. Why is it that we can say, why should we say, that you cannot get an ought from an is? Why can't we work from facts to moral imperatives? Yeah, so this we, uh, we call this the, the is-ought fallacy, right? Um, and it's you can see uh, maybe some silly examples of this, but you you know, church uh, church business meeting and there's proposal to change something that's been a longstanding tradition, and somebody says, oh, we can't we can't do that because it's just never been that way. This you know this is the way it is, and so we we can't do that. You know, and uh, uh, so you know we can run into these errors of thinking that just because something appears to be the case that it has some sort of implication about what we should or shouldn't do, right. and, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, the, the interesting thing that I, I would bring up here too, though, is that there, every fallacy um, is only a fallacy in certain conditions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so, because natural law, in one sense, has been charged with an is-ought fallacy mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so we have to work through that carefully and say, well, just because something is this way doesn't mean it ought to be that way. And yet sometimes very clearly the way a thing is gives indications of uh, how a thing is supposed to be also. Right. So how do we work through that? Yeah, so I think part of what we have to understand is that natural law theory is going to be based on the fact that reality is ordered in such a way that moral obligation exists. In other words, we can then look at the design, we can look at the order of the world, and we can understand from that design that there are going to be certain kinds of moral obligations that naturally follow as a consequence. That's, that's different, although admittedly it may seem like a subtle difference to some people. That's different than inferring an ought from an is. But it is recognizing that you know, as part of this broader understanding of the, of the basic facts of natural law, is this understanding of a particular design, a particular structure, a particular order, a particular logic to the world as it is, and therefore certain things are going to follow from that. Um, families, generally speaking, have parents and children. We recognize that there are exceptions to that, right? You may have a single mom, you may have a, a dad who's a widower, you may have you know unwed parents, uh, you have orphans of various of various kinds. Uh, but generally speaking, families are composed of parents and children. And when you begin to recognize that order, it's not surprising then to find in natural law this idea that we ought to honor one's parents and that parents ought to have an affection that is natural, that is basic 
that is obligatory for their children. You're, you're not allowed to hate your children. Like, if you hate your children, if you abuse your children, um, something's wrong with you, right? You, you are defective. You're broken. You're wrong. There, that's an evil um, that is not inferred strictly from what is, but is certainly consistent with what is. Right. But Lewis talks about um, considering whether, you know, the destruction of society or how to prevent the destruction of society. He says that this will preserve, uh, preserve society cannot lead to do this except by the mediation of society ought, keyword ought, exactly. to be preserved. This will cost you your life cannot lead directly to do not do this. It can lead to it only through a felt desire or an acknowledged duty of self-preservation. So there has to be this, again, this mediating thing. There has to be this thing that goes between here are the facts of the situation. And if you if you do this, this will be the result, right? But what is actually going to tell you to either do or not do that action? What is the thing that mediates that decision? And it can't be the thing itself. It can't be. Lewis talks about this also in Mere Christianity. I actually, I like his talk in Mere Christianity on this subject slightly better, I right? I do too. Yeah. Um, he, he talks about if you're, you know, you're playing a piano, mm -hmm. I think is the illustration he gives, um, that the thing which tells you what notes to play can't be the keys themselves, right. right? There has to be this kind of other thing mediating. Or he talks about a man who is uh, walking down the road and he sees another person being mugged in the street. And, you know, he has two immediate reactions, which are natural to us, which is either fight or flight. Um, but the thing that tells him what he ought to do, that he ought to help the man, that he ought to risk his own well-being and, and fight, right, can't be one of the instincts themselves. It has to be something outside. Exactly. And this is a very similar situation here. That's exactly right. And I think you see the breakdown in our own society uh, the, the, the logical consequences, I think, uh, Lewis is going to be arguing in part three of, you know, multiple generations now of Darwinian theory being applied to the young people uh, of, of our society. You know, wh why should we not simply kill ourselves? Hmm. Well, I mean, if you're basically, a, a, you know, a highly developed primate, if you are, you know, if you, you're an evolved, uh, you know, clump of cells and you're miserable in the existence that you have, there's no way to say you shouldn't just simply commit suicide. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, how, how are you going to stop it? How are you going to argue against it? And so at the very same time that you have a society pushing uh, all kinds of just madness and confusion and rebellion against God's created order and the idea of truth, goodness, and beauty, you also have just this massive campaign of like, the internet articles and radio advertisements and just surrounded constantly bombarded by information about suicide hotlines and if you know anyone who's contemplating suicide and here are the resources and please you know be a friend and reach out and and the question is why mm -hmm. says who yeah yeah it's really interesting so uh, I started reading uh, again I don't know what how many times this is through for me but uh, with my son Titus I started reading the uh, ransom trilogy again mm. today and so we're just in the early chapters of the, uh, the first book, Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, but even in those first few chapters, uh, getting a little bits from the character named Weston mm -hmm. and his philosophy. Right. And his driving principle is that no matter what, mankind must survive. Right. right? So he thinks that they can discover ways to skip off this planet you know, before it 
uses up all its natural resources or the sun goes supernova and takes it away or or whatever destruction might lie in, in wait for this planet. And they can just kind of stay ahead of the natural destruction that's coming, right? But mankind has to survive. But the most pressing question that Lewis brings up through this, this these books is, what what is the point of loving the idea of mankind right. and not loving a single individual human person? Exactly. It's just this wild notion that um, that again just kind of came out of this this Darwinistic idea, right. right? Of of survival of the fittest. You know well, why why is humanity uh, valuable, right? In a, in a system that that you know ostensibly would claim there is no ob objective value yeah. right and and very clearly in in that series in the first two books where weston figures prominently he doesn't love any men no right not he, a single person not, not they're a single all person. expendable towards this ultimate goal absolutely and it's not even his own survival that he's pressing toward it is no. this it is this idea this ideal of humanity's progress and survival uh, to the disregard uh, to the malicious disregard of any individual that gets in his way and you know that brings up something that you and I were talking about off off uh, camera earlier and that is that really even though we say that hideous strength is kind of the novelization of the ideas in the abolition of man and, and that's undoubtedly true really the entire ransom trilogy is expounding these ideas yeah. out of the silent planet Paralandra are kind of setting it up uh, they're introducing the conflict between worldviews that ultimately is brought you know, kind of fully uh, in, in, uh, into focus in that hideous strength. But really, the entire trilogy does uh, present these ideas very, very well. So there's, there's, no, uh, there's no way to absolutely go from is to ought without this kind of mediator, this third thing, right? But one way that they try to get around it is to suggest maybe the concept of instinct, which yes. again, we addressed that just a little bit in the, right. the illustration from Mere Christianity, but I think we should talk about it a little bit more here. Yeah. Um, so in saying instinct, what, what do they mean by yeah. instinct? Yeah, let me, let me read. You're going exactly where I was, I was hoping we would go next. Let me read just a, a, a snippet from uh, page 35 and 36. He says, from the statement about psychological fact, quote, I have an impulse to do so-and-so, we cannot by any ingenuity derive the practical principle, quote, I ought to obey this impulse. Even if it were true that men had a spontaneous, unreflective impulse to sacrifice their own lives for the preservation of their fellows, it remains a quite separate question whether this is an impulse they should control or one they should indulge. By instinct, he has in mind, obviously we, we use instinct with regard to animal behavior, and, and we could use it in that context he mentions it here, but with this idea of something that is innate, something that is impulse, driven, something that is not thought about, it's not critically explored, it just is virtually automatic. Mm -hmm. It's a desire, it's an impulse, and I do it uh, without thinking, without any reflection, without any question, should I do this or not? But the point that Lewis makes at the beginning of page 36 is our instincts are at war. If it is held that the instinct for preserving the species should always be obeyed at the expense of other instincts, whence do we derive this rule of precedence? We have all kinds of impulses. Yeah. We have all kinds of things that come very naturally to us. And some of them, by the way, are very, very bad, we would say, right? right, right. How do we decide when we have two conflicting impulses or two instincts, uh, to use the terminology, that are taking us in different directions, right? Pursuing different ends, uh, and we have to choose between them. 
how do we make that kind of a judgment? Yeah, and and under the the philosophy of the Green Book, there's actually no way to do it. Correct. Right. Um, what's interesting um, to me is that he he notes also that. Uh, it is maintained that we must obey instinct and that we cannot do otherwise. But if so, then why are, why are books like the Green Book even written? Right? Exactly. So uh, to, to, even, to even utter that kind of a philosophy, it's, it's like somebody who, who takes a really extremist view of, um, uh, of God's sovereignty in the sense that we're all just puppets, mindless mm -hmm. puppets, right? You know? And then they're, they're writing you a 500-page book to try to prove to you that you should believe that. Right. You know? right. And you're exactly. like, what, you know, what do you think that's going to do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, um, you know, but yeah, it's just this kind of uh, this weird, weird stance. But there has to be this third thing outside in order to be able to say, okay, I ought to obey this instinct. I ought not to obey this instinct. But this is also, I think, really relevant to our society right now in a lot of ways because um, you have people constantly saying, well, I just... I just feel, I just feel like I'm uh, a woman, even though I was born in a man's body, you know, mm -hmm. or, uh, Greg, Greg Kokel of Stand to Reason, uh, he, I've listened to him years ago talking about this issue before it was even as big of a thing as it is now. Uh, but you know, saying, well, our, just because we feel something or just because we even maybe have legitimately born with a certain, uh, predisposition towards a certain behavior, right. Doesn't mean that it's right, you know? Right. And he said, well, what if, um, what if I had a genetic predisposition that every time I was around somebody who said that they were gay, I just I just felt like the need to bash their head in with a rock, you know? Mm -hmm. If it was a natural impulse, wouldn't it be right to do so, right? And, and of course, everybody says, of course, that's of course not, not right. That's Of course, that's terrible, right? But, but it just goes just to the point, right? You can feel a lot of things. You can have impulses to do a lot of things. Nothing about that feeling natural to you makes it legitimate. That's right. Yeah, it's never a question of whether morality, it's which morality right. and why. What is it based upon? He says in, in on page 39, the truth finally becomes apparent that neither in any operation with factual propositions nor in any appeal to instinct can the innovator find the basis for a system of values. By the way, his, his interlocutor in part one is Gaius Antitius, in part two is the innovator, and in part three is the conditioner, right? right. Um, so the innovator is kind of the, the primary antagonist uh, in this section. And, and his point is that you can't reason from is to ought. We've already disposed of that. They say, well, but we've got instinct, and we've got that which is natural. Okay, well, you can't find any basis in instinct either. You can't establish any kind of truth, any kind of value system, any kind of guidance with regard to which impulses ought to be obeyed, why do we have a book uh, proposing a system of morality, a system of value that, that is, there is no value. Right. <laughs> it's all subjective, right? It doesn't matter because nothing actually matters. There is no such thing as truth. It is a self-contradictory claim. Even in this world where we have so much influence of subjectivism and radical relativism, you also have a tremendous number of people talking about your truth versus my truth, his truth versus her truth, and they're contradicting themselves in every word that comes out of their mouth. He says, none of the principles that he, the innovator, requires are to be found there, but they are all to be found somewhere else. That third way, that external standard. And again, going back to this idea of borrowed capital, 
the only way that the relativists can sustain the proposition that he is advancing is to borrow from an objective worldview. Yeah. It's to say, I am going to claim that there is no objective reality. I am going to claim that there is no such things as absolutes. And I'm absolutely sure of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you run into this person on the street or at work or wherever you may have a conversation that, that's going this route. I mean, the most pertinent question I can think to ask him is, why are we having this conversation? Exactly. Like, why are, yeah. why are you trying to convince me of this? I mean, like, what you think is right. Right. You know, and, and, and as soon as we're having that conversation, you say you're appealing to something outside of your own system. Right. You just don't have the means to ground this kind of objective idea of what we ought to do. And I love that in this book, he's as he's because the the idea of uh, you know the survival of humanity because instinct, herd instinct, whatever is driving us to make sure that the species survives. Right. I love his re response to this when he says, uh, "No parents who were guided by this instinct." would dream for a moment of setting up the claims of their hypothetical descendants against those of the baby actually crowing and kicking in the room. Right. And there's not a single parent who's ever been a parent uh, who will say, yeah, uh, if I can kill the toddler and have a better chance for my great, 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 great grandchild to survive... I'll do that. And yet, actually, in, in an ironic way, that is what they're doing. They're yeah. destroying their children. Yes, they are. Right? In in the you know the, the, the claim that they are going to serve posterity. This is something he gets into at the at the end of page 39 as he as he works forward from here. He says, all of the practical principles behind the innovator's case for posterity or society are the spe or the species are there from the time immemorial in the Tao, but they are nowhere else. He's pointing out that these are the things that the relativists, that the modernists claims to value, the advance of the human race, uh, the survival of the species. These kinds of things are clearly what they value, and they're doing things today that they think will advance that end, but actually they're destroying the children. They're destroying the children. They're ab abolishing man, and whatever is left at the end of this project is not going to be human. He says, unless you accept these without question as being to the world of action what axioms are to the world of theory, you can have no practical principles whatsoever. You cannot reach them as conclusions. They are premises. Yeah. Now, we need to talk about this because this is a, a an aspect of philosophy that we don't want listeners to miss. It's a very, very important point, but one that could easily be confusing to yep. people. What Lewis is claiming is that moral truths, moral obligations, moral duties are what they are. Mm -hmm. They are part of the fabric of reality. And they are not derived from arguments. Right. They are not reached by some kind of a reasoning process resulting in a conclusion. And, right. Okay, now, we, now we've worked the equation and we've de decided, yes, as a matter of fact, we're going to say that adultery is wrong. Yeah. He's we're, saying they are what they are. Help us with this. Yeah, well, so, and, this, and this is exactly why, uh, as, as interesting as things like Kantian ethics are, I mean, they're interesting. Of course. You know, yes. any kind of, yes. I, I love discussions of all these different systems of right. ethical decision-making. They're interesting. And yet... They completely miss the point because what they are trying to do is 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 argue for a, a way of concluding 
morality. And yet, we don't need to do that at all. Because let me just tell you right now, if you think it's okay in any possible situation to rape a child. That's right. You are bankrupt and broken. That's right. Right? And and everybody knows that's wrong. That's right. And there's no need to defend that's that, right. that that's wrong. Yes. Any, any more than there's a need to defend uh, stepping in front of a, a bus to, yeah. to move a woman out of the way, even if it costs you your own life, yeah. right? Is right, is praiseworthy, is applause worthy, right? Yes. Um, one philosopher I listened to uh, a, a number of years ago gave a, a true story about a plane that had taken off, but right at takeoff, it, it, it total engine failure, and it landed in the river right next to the airport. And so the, the first thing on site was a helicopter with a ladder, a little rope ladder, right? And there was a man who swam back and forth between the plane and the rope ladder, helping people from the plane get to that ladder. And he did it I don't know how many times, but eventually he himself drowned, right? right? So he's a hero. And everybody who knows the story would go, my goodness, like that was a man doing something good and brave and right and virtuous, right? And yet on the account of the Green Book or anything similar to it, that man's an absolute fool. That's right. Right? Um, and so there's, but there's no need for us to try to reason to say, oh, yes, we should be courageous like that for the good of humanity, you know, this future idea of enduring humanity. That just doesn't make any sense. That's right. And, and it's important for us to say that uh, in any number of moral questions, there is a place for reason, for argument, Absolutely. for logic. Of course, this is a fund this is fundamental to Christian apologetics. This is fundamental to philosophy of all kinds. But it is to say that there are certain axioms, there are certain basic beliefs, there are certain foundational assumptions, presuppositions, without which you can't even begin to have a conversation. Yeah. So he says later on page 40, if nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. Right. Similarly, if nothing is obligatory for its own sake, nothing is obligatory at all. You know, this is the same kind of insanity that's leading people right now to say one plus one isn't always two. Right. Now listen to me, there is nothing more axiomatic. <laughs> I'm smart, you're dumb. Yeah. Than basics of mathematics, right. right? Right. I mean, it's just, I mean, there's, I don't know how you get around, like, okay, here's an object, here is another object. I have one object. I have two objects. One plus one is two. Like, it's just, right. like, there's no way around those kind of things. It is just the the basics of reality, right? And, that, and that's helpful because that helps to helps us to illustrate the very point of how where is the place for argument? Where is the place for logic and reasoning with someone? It's starting with the foundational presuppositions mm -hmm. and saying this these are mathematical facts. Yes. This is the way that numbers work. Now, the way that you worked this particular equation, I I don't think you're working it right. You argue from axioms. You exactly. argue from first principles. You never can Correct. argue to them. Correct. And and if you deny their existence, just sit there and be silent right. because you literally have nothing you can say. That's right. If there is no assumed truth, no self-evident truths, there's nowhere to go from there. That's right. That's right. And so if I'm having a dialogue with someone who says, 
you should support same-sex marriage and transgender rights. Yeah. And I say, uh, you know, you should oppose abortion. Uh, okay, we're both taking a moral position. We can have a conversation if we believe that there is actual moral authority behind our positions. We can actually have a conversation about how do we work this math equation. But we're working from, we're working with or against, depending on our conclusions, those foundational principles that are simply true. If one of us says, I don't believe that it matters, I don't believe that there's any absolute truth. I don't believe that there's any such thing as objective morality. Then the conversation's over. Yeah. Don't tell me that the Holocaust is wrong. Right. Don't tell me that you know uh, doing experiments on minority populations is wrong or yeah. immoral or right. evil. Like th no, no, those are categories in my worldview. Yes. They're not categories that you get to use. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's hundred percent right. I mean, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, the, if you don't start with at least theism yeah. all right and i mean i will I, there's good ways to argue that christian theism is better than just basic classical theism but if you don't start with at least the say at the backstop of reality is one ultimate sovereign true god that created all things you have no basis to argue for any morality you're about to lead me into the critique of lewis that i'm going to have to somewhat reluctantly make but before i get there real <laughs> quick let me offer one other thing that Lewis says about this, because the relativist, the modernist, the innovator, as he terms him, is sawing off the branch that he's sitting on. He is arguing that something is immoral as he is insisting that there's no such thing as morality. And right. he says this on page 41, all the values which he uses in attacking the Tao and even claims to be substituting for it are themselves derived from the Tao. Yeah. If he had really started from scratch, from right outside the human tradition of value, no jugglery could have advanced him an inch toward the conception that a man should die for the community or work for posterity. If the Tao falls, all his own conceptions of value fall with it. Not one of them can claim any authority other than that of the Tao. Only by such shreds of the Tao as he has inherited is he able is is he enabled even to attack it and, and, and this is the thing is that so many secularists in western civilization today are working from the borrowed capital of a christian worldview from a judeo-christian ethic they are working out of a heritage that they're in the process of denying and railing against and trying to burn down and yet that opposition would not even be possible without the heritage of values that that you know that they that they are standing against yeah this is like the man who uh, argues that uh, Aristotelian logic is just Western logic but there's an Eastern logic right and so you don't have to follow Aristotelian logic because you can follow this other kind of logic and then you ask the question are you saying that you can either follow this logic or that logic right and he's already using binary terms he's already <laughs> He's right. already using Aristotelian categories to argue with you, right? Yeah. Um, so anyway. that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. Let's let's get to to, to to one more piece and then maybe start sharing some of our our critiques or perfections uh, to to Lewis's argument here. On page forty four, he says the rebellion of new ideologies against the Tao is a rebellion of the branches against the tree. If the rebels could succeed, they would find that they had destroyed themselves. The human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color. 
or indeed of creating a new sun and a new sky for it to move in. I would like to invite the listener right now to take just a moment, close your eyes, <laughs> and go ahead and try to imagine a new color that you've never seen that before. never seen, or a shape that you've never seen before. <laughs> this, uh, I mean, I, I, we could spend a long time just riffing off of that, but just the, the area of epistemology or the, the, the philosophy having to do with how we know, right? And the idea of uh, forming sensory perceptions. And, you know, you cannot conceive of anything that you have not in some way, shape, or form experienced, yeah. right? You can recombine different things. You can kind of smash them together in your mind. But you cannot imagine anything that's completely new to you. That's right. That's right. Uh, which tells you right now, we're, we're all borrowing from things that are. We receive reality. We don't make it. I think it's appropriate to refer to human beings as image bearers of God, as sub-creators. I do believe that we have a creative um, capacity yeah. that is a reflection of the Imago Dei. However, if I were going to be a stickler, I might say that human beings are not actually creative we are constructive. Right. We work with existing materials. None of us create ex nihilo. That is why all of the great stories echo one true story. That is why Hollywood is notoriously uncreative and just keeps recycling the same storylines. And, and we're glad for them too, largely. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> many yeah. times, yeah. many times. Yeah, and we're entertained by it. But but it's because we are not truly creative in the sense that God is creative. He works. He brings something out of nothing. We bring the something into something more, yeah. into something else. But without the basic materials, we have nothing that we can do. Yeah, that's what Solomon says, that there's nothing new under the sun. Exactly. Right? He was saying that a long time that ago. That was a long time ago, <laughs> 3,000 years thereabouts. Let me, let me read two portions uh, and then maybe us talk a little bit about what might be some shortcomings, some limitations, and again, offered with the, the utmost appreciation and respect for Lewis. And I think it's important for us to realize what he's doing here. And within the, within the scope of what he's attempting to do, he's doing it so very well. But I think even Chesterton has maybe an insight that oh, here we go. <laughs> Lewis might have profited from remembering in some of his argumentation. So on page 43... A, a passage that I read at the beginning of the episode, again he says, This thing which I have called for convenience the Tao, and which others may call natural law, or traditional morality, or the first principles of practical reason, or the first platitudes, is not one among a series of possible systems of value. It is the sole source of all value judgments. If it is rejected, all value is rejected. If any value is retained, it is retained. The effort to refute it and raise a new system of value in its place is self-contradictory. There has never been and never will be a radically new judgment of value in the history of the world. So far, so good. Right. We would all say yes all and amen. It really right just here. kind of summarizes everything we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes or so. But then on page 49, he says this. He says, I am not here attempting any indirect argument for theism. We might point out he's not making any direct argument for theism either. He's just trying to reassure the reader. Look, I'm not trying to smuggle my Christianity in the back door. I am not here attempting any indirect argument for theism. I am simply arguing that if we are to have values at all, we must accept the ultimate platitudes of practical reason as having absolute validity. That any attempt, having become skeptical about these, to reintroduce value lower down on some supposedly more realistic basis is 
doomed. But Jacob, I, I think there are a couple of problems here. Okay. okay, and let me just let me just lay them out. One of them you've already raised, and that is, can you get to the absolute universal objective morality that Lewis is arguing for in an atheistic system? I don't believe so. No. Secondly, is the compatibility, is the agreement between various faith traditions, world religions, philosophical systems, is it as great as Lewis seems to be suggesting it is? I would say no. I, I, I want to be careful here not to misrepresent Lewis because I think he himself would acknowledge there's, there's vast differences. But I think maybe for the sake of his argument here, he's painting in part one and part two an overly optimistic perspective on how much moral concurrence there is, and that's where I'm going to bring so, Chesterton in. I'm not sure I would agree with that. Okay, hang on. Right. And then the third point, the third the third point is I think that Lewis is either overestimating or just for the sake of his argument, downplaying and not dealing with the noetic effects of sin and how well we can perceive and apply that natural law apart from the framework of God, and specifically, we would say, of Christian revelation. So those are the three issues I want us to, to delve into just a little bit. Maybe we can just take them in order, because I think we're in agreement probably on at least one, if not two, of those three. Yeah. Can you, can you get to this kind of universal objective morality from an atheistic worldview? Not only can you not get to it from an atheistic worldview, you can't get it from a pantheistic worldview. You need a personal, uh, transcendent God. You need, at the again, at the backstop of reality, uh, a source that that can justify what we ought to do with our lives. Why would it, why would a pantheistic God, which is ultimately just the deifying the universe, right? right. Why would it care? It's non-personal, right? Um, so the whole idea of oughtness seems to me involves will. Can you can you derive personal obligation from impersonal origin? Yeah, I mean, if you can, then you're just as likely to derive it from rocks and trees as you are well, some exactly. version of. You know, exactly, it, it goes back to you know when we when we talk about you know the the the, the five causes or the, the arguments for God you know the, this idea of first cause like does does life come from life or does life come from non life right right does does moral obligation come from personal or impersonal points of origin well I mean when you stop and think about this if you were the only being in the universe there would actually be no moral obligation whatsoever, would yeah. there, right? So the very notion of moral obligation involves personalities in relationship with one another. At the very least, right, God to the first man, right? Uh, but this is one of the ways that I actually point out that Christian theism is superior to other forms of theism because in the triunity of our God, God was not deficient in needing man for there to be moral truth in play. Within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there was perfect moral relationship, yes. right? So this is just one way that Christian theism outstripes even, you know, uh, versions of theism, like whether we think of Islam or, or just some other version of a, of a theistic concept. 
um, maybe classical theism without attaching to a particular religion at least right. falls short of this. You know, uh, this is the same reason why polytheism struggles, right? Uh, when you think of Euthyphro's dilemma, mm-hmm. uh, well, the gods all disagree with each other, right? They can't get along with each other. There has to be something above and beyond them in order for there to be a true moral reality. Well said. Uh, and, and not only well said, because I, I think you're exactly right, uh, and, and that's a very fair critique and maybe uh, respectful improvement uh, upon some of the argument that's found here, but also because I think you just agreed with my second point that you initially were trying to disagree we'll see. with. We'll see. Uh... Because in part one, Lewis, Lewis actually associates the Tao with Confucianism, with Hinduism, with Judaism, with Islam, yeah. uh, with Stoicism, which is, you know, for all intents and purposes, an atheistic philosophy, right? Um, and, and yet he sees the Tao as, uh, as kind of standing behind and beneath all of these systems yeah. in, in a way that I, I don't think is, is adequate. Here's maybe where I, I say I disagree, but I don't think you and I really disagree. Yeah. Um, what I think Lewis is simply saying about all of these other religious worldviews uh, is that they admit the Tao. Yes. Right. So absolutely. So I, I don't think Lewis is by any means giving uh, equality of of reason with with all these other religious systems or or philosophies. Uh, I think that he would, in other places, does mm-hmm. argue that Christianity is the superior religion that it, it better grounds these concepts. Right. But what I think he's, I, what I think he's simply saying is that these other systems admit the Tao. Yes. Uh, they may not have sufficient grounding to do so legitimately. Right. But they're all trying to. I mean, again, this is like you know Euthyphro's dilemma. I mean, Euthyphro, who believes very much in the gods, just as Homer describes them with all mm-hmm. of their antics and disagreements, he's still thoroughly convinced that piety is real, that holiness is real, that That's there's right. justice and injustice. So, you know, he's not, what, what, what Socrates does is shows the inconsistency yes. of polytheism with that conviction. And yet, the Greco-Roman world and all their craziness and their gods still very much believed in the Tao. Right. And I think that's what Lewis is saying. I think that that's fair, and I think that that's true. We definitely agree on that. I think that Lewis's point, which maybe could have been stated more clearly. That's probably true. Uh, is that insofar as... Hinduism, Confucianism, Stoicism, Islam, and these various other faiths and philosophies, insofar as they perceive absolute moral truths, moral obligation, principles of justice, in that far, they are aligning with the Tao, or what he's calling the Tao, this natural law principle. And yet I do think that there could be more clarity... And maybe, maybe it would require a part four to abolition of man, right? Who wouldn't love to have another, another section to abolition of man? Make it 120 pages, right? And I, and I do think it has to do with what Lewis is trying to accomplish and who he envisions as his audience right here. I think right that's here. fair. I you think know, that's fair. I, I think, because again, I think, you know, if you're reading his essays in God in the Dock, if you've read Mere Christianity, if you a lot of other places, right? Most definitely. You, you know that Lewis thinks more than he's saying about this. Right. He, de- he definitely does. And yet at the same time, I want to remind each other that two things can be true at once. 
we need to read Lewis charitably here in light of everything else he said everywhere else. And that's why I, I perhaps interpret the character of Emmeth in Last Battle more charitably than even you might or, or, or some other uh, commentators might. We have to read him in light of his entire canon. Well, but, just two. I'm going to call us two right here. Ready? Ready? Two, you have to read Lewis in a, such a way that you can let Chesterton correct him sometimes. <laughs> well, that's obviously true, but that wasn't my second point. <laughs> no, my second point was going to be just the acknowledgement that all of us who write, who teach, who argue are sometimes inconsistent with ourselves. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of sermons, articles, uh, essays that you can find that I've written over the last 20 plus years uh, where I'm in contradiction with myself. And sometimes it's it's even in a, in a pretty short span of time. And maybe, oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's because the argument's not well developed. Maybe it's because I'm, you know, I'm just, I, I'm not, uh, I'm not thinking about one aspect of the issue. I'm focused yeah. on something else over here. Yeah. So I want us to be careful that we don't just whitewash whatever Lewis may have said and just say it can only be interpreted in the most charitable and orthodox way. Well, I mean, you know, there there may be some weaknesses here that need to be filled in a little bit. And I think Lewis does do that in other places. You already said there are sections of mere Christianity that I think are more clear yeah. and maybe more forceful than certain parts of abolition of man and vice versa, by the sure. way. Yeah. I don't think mere Christianity is Lewis's best work by a long shot. Nope. Nope. <laughs> it's it's probably his most popular work. I it's I don't I don't even think it's in top five of his nonfiction works for no, me. You know? I agree. Um, but it, you know it's to that point is to say look this could be shored up in a few places. And I do want to bring Chesterton into the conversation just very briefly because not just because I love Chesterton and I always want to bring Chesterton into everything, but because Chesterton admittedly had a huge impact on Lewis. Yeah. The everlasting man was was central to Lewis's conversion. And orthodoxy is in many ways kind of a popular level uh, summary, condensation of, of a lot of the important ideas in everlasting man. And this is something that Chesterton says in the romance of orthodoxy in, in orthodoxy. He says this. He says... Um, there is a phrase of facile liberality uttered again and again at ethical societies and parliaments of religion. Quote, The religions of the earth differ in rites and forms, but they are the same in what they teach. End quote. It is false. It is the opposite of the fact. The religions of the earth do not greatly differ in rites and forms. They do greatly differ in what they teach. And he goes on to demonstrate that over the rest of this chapter. And, and you know, I think that Lewis would say yes and amen to that. I, I, I don't think that Lewis is standing opposed to that at all, but I do think that that's one aspect of the broader conversation that readers of abolition need to bear in mind is to say that, that Lewis is not doing what a lot of pluralists do today and just flattening everything out and saying, we don't really need a God. We don't really need religion. We just need to be good people. And we all agree on what that looks like. I think Lewis would say, no, <laughs> you know, stuff and nonsense, right? Yeah. And Chesterton would very clearly say, no, you're, you're missing the whole point. I mean, it's the rites and the forms of religion that are the consistent parts. It's the ethics where you actually see the nature of the God yeah. in the system. Yeah, it's this, I guess it's this dance and this balance, you might say, uh, between, you know, Christianity as the true religion, the word of God as the final and absolute authority for Christian faith and practice, judging all other perspectives and philosophies and religions outside of it and saying, you know, you know, 
where you're where you disagree you're absolutely wrong and we need to do that as christians um but sometimes in the midst of that sometimes christians are, are baby with the bathwater ish about it right and they say so therefore there's nothing you can learn in the greeks there's nothing you can learn from reading the chinese philosophers or nothing you know what i mean and so we've got to we've got to be able to find that balance and say okay but you got to understand while the scripture stands over and judges all other worldviews all other philosophies all other systems insofar as those other systems and ideas agree with the principles of scripture they have landed upon truth given to them by god through natural divine mm. i mean natural revelation you know yes. um and so we find value there that's um, exactly right yeah i think we have to be willing to say two things right all truth is god's truth right there's no truth outside of god right. there's no truth outside of what god has made known either naturally or specially and covenantally all truth is god's truth and all that is in various faiths and philosophies is not true. And I think it's worth <laughs> not mentioning. Not everything is true. I right? think it's worth mentioning. Uh, I think this could get lost easily if we're not careful. That truth is also a value judgment. Yes. So we, we're often, we talk about, you know, truth, goodness, beauty. Well, people think of goodness, morality, and beauty, aesthetics. Those are value judgments. And, and the truth is some other, like, maybe more scientific category or something like that. Right. But they're all value judgments. Yes. And they actually have the exact same grounding and source. The reason anything is true, the reason anything is good, the reason anything is beautiful is because God exists. Exactly. And if God doesn't exist, those are all gone. That's exactly right. That's, which is why, you know, the, the atheistic endeavor, right, to, to come to some, you know, I mean, before postmodernism raised its ugly head, which is a product of the Enlightenment, yes, by the way. It is. But before it did that, they had this kind of hopeful, we can discover absolute truth by reason alone, by uh you know inductive method alone we don't need to refer to god or religion or but again like we've said the whole podcast episode they're borrowing capital yes. there is no basis for for value judgments of saying this thing is true that thing is false unless god exists this is why i think that fundamentally you can't do what lewis does here and he does it so well I mean, again don't don't take that as a, a you know as, as a dismissal of of his work but when he says i'm not trying to make any case direct or indirect for theism it's like but you are. But you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's inevitable and it's yeah. unesca inescapable. And and again, it's not just an argument. And and, and maybe this is where uh, Lewis might have disagreed. But but I'd be happy to sit down in a pub and you know have have this conversation with him. Uh, it's it's not just theism that you're making a case for. It's Christian theism, yeah. because the issue of the one and the many, like you can't you can't get where Lewis is going you can't Lewis is standing on the ground of trinitarianism mm -hmm. right and uh, and it's you just can't get there from hinduism you can't get there from islam you can't get there from the type of monotheistic judaism post the rejection of jesus as the messiah you you just can't get there from stoicism uh, you are inevitably inescapably advancing a claim for christian theism and that is triune and uh, and God is at the is at the foundation. He is the fount of all truth, goodness, and beauty. Without Him in the system, those those words have no meaning. Yeah, I just I, I this is a uh, I'm already kind of talked about it, but I want to just kind of reemphasize this point. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. That you know, atheism is utterly bankrupt to give us any value judgment. 
polytheism is hopeless because it's just they're combative against one another there's no there's no final source because they're at, at best they're on par they're equal with one another but again even regular theism non-christian theism is bankrupt too because again there god is actually lacking he actually needs a subject and able to show to be able to show his attributes right. to be able to pass on value judgments and things like that right so only in christian theism in a triune father son holy spirit three persons one god perfect and equal in glory and power and eternity only there do you get a sufficient view of god and the ability to ground all of these things no other system has the aseity of god the right. self-existence of god in every other system creation is necessary not contingent and uh, and if we just lost you know Two-thirds of our audience, we apologize. Email us, tweet at Jacob, and we'll be happy to, to talk about that more and unpack it. Uh, yes, yes and amen. Let's let's talk about the third right. the third point where I want to just like gently critique and then and then maybe we'll we'll touch briefly on part three before we're done. Um, the third point was is Lewis inadequately acknowledging the noetic effects of sin? The, the noetic effects referring to the effect of the fall upon the mind, the sinful nature, the corruption of our faculties. In other words, our thoughts, our desires are polluted by sin. Is natural law a thing? Absolutely. It, it comes from the same God who has revealed his moral law in the pages of Scripture. It's the same law. It's not as if we have natural law over here and some other law given to the people of God over there. But if we're going to say which of these is clearer, which of these is more easily perceived, which of these is more readily applied, which of these revelations can we use to assess and correct and interpret the other? It's going to have to be special revelation because fallen man, being polluted, being corrupt in his desires, in his thoughts, is not going to adequately perceive or agree upon the content of natural law, which is why we have the debates that we do, which is why we have people who are image bearers of God, whether they want to admit it or not, who understand the concept of moral obligation, whether they profess to affirm it or not, they, they claim that it is morally obligatory to celebrate same-sex marriage. It is morally obligatory to support abortion rights. It is morally obligatory to you know, uh, hate and denounce the Holocaust. Well, look, there, there's, some, there's some real inconsistencies in this perception of natural law. To what can we attribute that? I think the effects of the fall, and it is the inevitable, the inevitable issue with any kind of natural law ethic is that you need the additional insight, the additional clarification, the objective clarification of Scripture to help correct the vision. Scripture becomes the, the lens, right? The spectacles that we put on our, our face as we read God's will. See, but again, I, I don't think Lewis would disagree with anything you've said. I don't think so either. Right, and, and, and so I, I really see abolition of man as essentially a defense of first principles yes. That, yes. that establishing the reality that you cannot establish these right. principles, right. right? They're just there. From there, you have a platform to work towards other things. Yes. And, so, and so I really think that's Lewis's goal here yes. is to just say, let me tell you 
what you already know. Yes. And let's stop being silly and let's just admit, right, that there are indeed absolute moral values. Yes. We all know it. Yes. Every civilization, every religion in the history of the world knows it. Even the atheist knows it, right? Because atheists are really terrible at being atheists, right. right? Everybody knows it. And so I think that's the entire point of this book is that it's it's just the way it is. And from that, once we kind of clear that up a little bit, right, I think Lewis has a lot more to say. So, so you know, again, just trying to be charitable with him here, I think that I think that he knows what he's doing. I mm-hmm. think he knows his audience. Yes. I think he's 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 being uh, a good rhetor, right? Who knows who he's addressing, and he's wanting to clear away the stupidity that he hears at Oxford all the time, right? Right. Right. And he wants them to say, okay, well, sure, great. Now that you've said that, let's talk about Christianity. I really think that's what he's doing. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think that's right, and I think that is certainly the charity with which we wish to interpret him. And I think what he does in this book is absolutely brilliant. These three lectures are tremendous. They're powerful. They're insightful. Uh, again, I just I think that they are a, a prolegomena. Yes, right? Absolutely. And, and, and this is the reason I raise these issues is because I think there are some people that read abolition of man or works like it and think that this is this is the sum and substance right and and i don't think lewis would say that no uh and i certainly would deny that that's the case i would say if if this is all you've got you don't you don't have very much but as a prolegomena as a primer as a platform for beginning a conversation it's absolutely magnificent it's an important work to read and reread and meditate upon just make sure that you don't check your Christian convictions at the door as if I don't really need those because because I have the Tao. And if I've got the Tao, I mean, like, you know, of what value is the Christian tradition to me? Yeah. But, it, but it, again, the Tao, right, does the same thing what Romans 1 tells us uh, That's exactly nature right. does, right? Yes. It, it, it gives us enough knowledge to know that there are indeed moral truths. And by the way, I'm not keeping them very well. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of in huge trouble. Just to put a point on it, the Tao cannot save you, but it sure can damn you. Yeah. Yeah. It's an it's sufficient to condemn. It's not sufficient to save. And useful to show other people that, Absolutely. by the way, you're damned. Most and definitely. And by the way, you've got a problem that you need a solution to. Most definitely. <laughs> and his name is Jesus, That's right. folks. Yeah, yes. exactly. Um, so part three, and, and, and we've, we've already been going over an hour, brother. So we're going to, we're going to hit this third part really lightly. Let's just admit, like our fans are really special people that are just willing to power through with <laughs> they're us. They're being very patient with us. Yeah. They're, they're probably listening to us on three times speed and only catching like every fourth word. So that's okay. <laughs> uh, to set up part three, because we're skipping over some things that he says at the end of part two, in part three, he's taking the next step and really answering the question, can we gain freedom for the human race by casting off the tradition? That's what the innovator wants to do. That's what the authors of the Green Book ultimately are leading us to, whether they know it or not. Can we achieve liberty for humanity by casting off the shackles of the tradition? Sounds a lot like Psalm 2. Mm. Why do the, Why nations, the nations rage and the people's plot a vain thing right they want to cast off the cords of god and of his law of his word and they think by that they will gain their freedom but as lewis quotes bunyan in the opening quote of this lecture he says quote it came burning hot into my mind whatever he said and however he flattered when he got me home to his house he would sell me for a slave Mm. and that is ultimately what's coming 
you embrace this modernist delusion, you have not achieved liberty, but you have only sold yourself under tyranny. Yeah. Yeah, it, this is this is the the sad reality of really the whole human race apart from Christ is that we think if we are to be truly free, that means doing whatever we want, not having to respect any authority outside of our own will and desires, right? And yet the second we get exactly what we want, we find ourselves enslaved. We find ourselves unable uh, by any means to do the things that we really thought we wanted. Yes, <laughs> that's know? exactly right. So he begins by a discussion of man's power, so-called, over nature. Right. Uh, the progress of technology, yeah. the various advances that we have made, the ways that we are mastering the world and the universe and bringing it in submission to man and to his interests. Uh, is, this, is this really progress? Well, Lewis kind of deconstructs this idea. One of the things that he says in assessing it in page 55 is what we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. He goes on on the next page to say this, In order to understand fully what man's power over nature, and therefore the power of some men over other man, really means, we must picture the race extended in time from the date of its emergence to that of its extinction. Each generation exercises power over its successors, and each, insofar as it modifies the environment bequeathed to it and rebels against tradition, resists and limits the power of its predecessors. Mm -hmm. So are we really making progress if what we're actually doing is narrowing the field, limiting the scope, robbing people of liberty by, by means of these vain attempts to control our environment and the world in which we live? It's a really, um, this section, this last section of this book, uh, I think I read this, one of the times I've read this, I read it almost in parallel with reading H.G. Wells' Time Machine. Oh, wow. Which, by the way, is what we're going to do, I think, next on the uh, It's podcast, coming up. Right? Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I noted several times that this just reminds me of that. Because in, in the Time Machine, what you see in H.G. Wells, uh, without getting too far into that, <laughs> is kind of an atheistic eschatology. Yeah. Um, it fits well. Where, yeah, where does where does man end up when they've tried to control absolutely everything? And, of course, where you end up is no more man. That's exactly right. And that is why this third part, as well as the work as a whole, is called the abolition of man. Because what Lewis argues is that the end of this project is the destruction of the human race. Mm -hmm. The project that purports to be preserving and advancing and and you know uh, uh, prizing the the human race just as weston sought to do actually in the end destroys it weston ceases to be human yeah yeah he says on page 59 the power of man to make himself what he pleases means as we have seen the power of some men to make other men what they please uh, in the same way that we said in part two Theism, and specifically Christian theism, is inevitable and inescapable. I would argue that tyranny and brutal tyranny is the inevitable and inescapable outcome of modernist philosophies yeah. and postmodernist ideologies. That, I, 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 and, and I don't want to simply argue from precedence that, well, that's the way it's always turned out, so that's the way it's always going to turn out, but... But it does seem, 
not only to logically follow, but in concrete historical instances to have proven time and time and time again to be true. You reject God, you reject traditional morality, you reject the concept of natural law, you don't set men free. You put the majority of men in gulags and in poverty, and you empower a few men to act like brutal dictators yeah. bathing in their blood. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you you get rid of the Tao, you realize all there actually is, is I want to survive and I want to thrive personally. Correct. And so what that means is in order for that to happen is that others must be subjugated. That's exactly right. right? I mean, that's, that, and it is. That's how it's played out every single time on the grand, on the grand scheme of things. Uh, this, is, this is what you see in China right now. That's right. Right? There are no, uh, none of these, you know, millions and millions of people have any inherent value because they're not seen as image bearers. Therefore, they are just pawns to uh, make some rich, to make some powerful, and uh, they will be squelched anytime they raise their heads up against that. So page 73, he says, Either we are rational spirit obliged forever to obey the absolute values of the Tao, or else we are mere nature to be kneaded and cut into new shapes for the pleasures of masters who must, by hypothesis, have no motive but their own natural impulses. Only the Tao provides a common human law of action which can overarch rulers and ruled alike. A dogmatic belief in objective value is necessary to the very idea of a rule which is not tyranny or an obedience which is not slavery. It's powerful imagery because he is talking about human persons like wood or stone. So, you know, the, the, the art and imagination of man has, as we've talked about earlier has recreated has has refashioned things uh, to be useful so we have cut down trees and we have hewn stone and we have made buildings and we have you know made all of these different things for our benefit well the end of this process the end of the green book is to see man as nothing more than another natural resource right. something that you can just as easily cut down as a tree if it benefits you personally that's exactly right. Why would you not? That's exactly right. It is a sobering, a sobering point, but I think an inarguable one. And again, it comes back to this, this antithesis. It's not whether, but which. Yeah. Are you going to serve Yahweh, who is the true God, right. or are you going to serve the conditioners who want to be God? Um, I've got I've got three brief quotes left, and really two two points for us to talk about, and then I think I'm done. Let's do it. Um, so on page 77, Lewis is in the middle of um, a discussion of the similarity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I love this section. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> the similarity between science and magic. Yeah. And you knew I was going to have to come here, and, and and it was this this section was really hard for me to decide what what are we going to include, or are we going to just read the entire thing. Right. He says this, There is something which unites magic and applied science while separating both from the wisdom of earlier ages. For the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution had been knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. I want you to think about that for a second. What's the problem in the ancient world? I am. I am. Here's the world as it stands. And I am out of harmony with that. 
And how am I going to be brought into harmony with it? Well, through knowledge, learning, growing, disciplining myself in light of what I learn, and then thereby becoming a virtuous person who is aligned with truth, goodness, and beauty. But he goes on. He says, for magic and applied science alike, the problem is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men. The solution is a technique, and both in the practice of this technique are ready to do things hitherto regarded as disgusting and impious, such as digging up and mutilating the dead. Again, such a powerful uh, illustration for thinking about classical education versus modern education. Yes, indeed. The classical education says to the students, students, you must learn first and foremost to master your own heart. Mm. You must become a person of virtue by submitting yourself to Christ. You must repent of your sin and turn away from where we've gone wrong and follow the, the commandments and the laws of God. Um, and the modern education says, forget all that. I'm going to teach you how to manipulate nature to your own advantage. That's right. And, we, and we'll change the testing standards if it's too hard. And we'll change the curriculum if it's if it's not meeting your needs. Because, yeah, actually what I just said is almost uh, almost optimistic, right? Because at, <laughs> once, at one time, that was the idea of the modern education. But I think we're seeing more and more this realization that the many need to serve the few. So modern education really is turning more and more into, I don't really care if you learn anything as long as you're useful in my plan. Yeah. Now, I know that sounds dark and I know that sounds dramatic, but I don't know how you don't see that if you're paying attention. Right. And to that point, Lewis says on page 78, it might be going too far to say that the modern scientific movement was tainted from its birth. But I think it would be true to say that it was born in an unhealthy neighborhood and at an inauspicious hour. Its triumphs may have been too rapid and purchased at too high a price. Reconsideration and something like repentance may be required. And he acknowledges that many people are going to take this as an attack on science, which it's not. Right. Not on true science, not on the pursuit of knowledge. Really so much of real science and scientific advancements and technological advancements in the modern world have been built upon a Christian worldview and have been pursued by people who believe that there was a design and order and structure to the universe that could be understood by applying oneself to the discipline. Uh, but he's thinking here about Darwinism and the kind of pseudoscience that has produced a society of trousered apes and that is fundamentally self-destructive, and there's no way to baptize it and make it okay you have to you have to kill it and cause it to be reborn. God saves by judgment. He saves through resurrection. You can't put lipstick on a pig and change the fact that it's a pig, and that's why repentance is required. You've got to go back to the, where the error was first made, as he would say in the preface to The Great Divorce, and rework the problem from there. Lewis... Uh... He kind of ends by talking about how the, the, the project that they have imagined themselves to be doing is kind of seeing through, seeing through nature, seeing, uh, you know, how they can control and how they can manipulate. And, and they just kind of keep pushing further and further to say, we don't, we don't need all these things that have been handed down to us. We can see right through them. And he makes this point. He says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? 
It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. That's right. So again, um, and one of the guys that I have read a lot lately and will continue to read, his name is Joseph Pieper. And one of the most um, foundational points he makes, <laughs> one of the most foundational points he makes um, is that ultimately we must be passive receptors of reality. Mm -hmm. That we must simply see what's already there. We are not the maker. It always comes back to the creator-creature distinction, doesn't it? Does. It does. Yeah. It's, it's recognizing there is a God, and I'm not him. Yeah. And if there is a God, then I am a creature. And my purpose in this life is to come to know the one who knew me before I began to be. The fear of God is the beginning of all knowledge. I think I've read that somewhere. Yeah. Praise God. That's true. Praise God. Abolition of man, highly highly recommend it yeah read it reread it you and i've been rereading this for a number of years now and i think i've i've read it three times already this year just in prepping for these couple yeah, of episodes and, and again i think this is obvious in what we've said already but uh, don't read abolition of man in a vacuum of right. c.s lewis's works right it's a it's one you want to read but read mere christianity absolutely you know read uh read god in the dock is his yep. collection of essays where he's kind of making an apologetic defense of christianity i mean you know I think the more you read Lewis in context of the greater Lewis works, right, um, the more you're going to appreciate each part of it because he just keeps speaking about the same things from different angles. That's exactly right. And we, we love him. We thank God for him. Uh, we appreciate so much his work, his influence upon our lives. He continues to be our teacher. And uh, Lord willing, will continue to be throughout the duration of our lives in the present world. And we hope that uh, his work is uh, being a blessing uh, to you through uh, this process podcast and the discussions uh, that we're having about so many of the pieces that he's done. Uh, we will continue to return to Lewis uh, many times, I'm sure, over the however long this podcast lasts, over the next several years, whatever the Lord allows us. But in uh, in our future episodes, we're going to be returning to some fiction. Uh, our plan, uh, without giving too much away, is to, is to kind of alternate a little bit between uh, works of fiction and nonfiction, works that we hope will be complementary in terms of the themes that uh, they're addressing. I think that's gone pretty well so far, yeah. and uh, we'll move back and forth. In the meantime, we want to hear from you, whether you email us, whether you tweet at us, uh, whether you interact uh, by sharing our content online. We so do so appreciate that, uh, giving those likes and shares and reviews and all of those other things that I'm supposed to say here that I don't really know to say because I'm so... Check us out on Twitter and YouTube. So if, you just, if you just type in the Totally Leggy Podcast, you're going to find us uh, really easily. There's... There's not too many of those out there. So Jacob, it's been a delight, and not just because you have pants on. I <laughs> I have especially enjoyed that aspect of this podcast, but uh, the discussion's been great. Uh, the the book that we've been reviewing, I mean, just uh, is is fantastic. One of our favorites, and I always enjoy getting to spend time with you, brother. I love it very much, and I promise not to wear pants during our next podcast episode. <laughs> if uh, please, please come back. <laughs> that's why that's why the desk is here. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next time. We'll see you. Take up and read. <laughs> the Totally Like A Podcast is produced, filmed, and edited by Elijah Ellis. Music composed by Eric Welch. Copyright The Totally Like A Podcast. 
2022.